The celebration of Mother's Day is obviously a celebration of life. Our all-wise Father created Eve to play the primary role in nurturing new life as we fill the earth. Yet, as we honor mothers and celebrate life today, we realize there's a seriousness to it all because our celebration takes place along the rim of death's abyss. We realize that the very womb created to nurture life often becomes a torture chamber for the unborn. We witness this horror when a woman consumes alcohol or smokes tobacco or abuses drugs during pregnancy. Worse yet, the womb of life can become a death trap in which a child is caged for the kill shot of an abortionist. Feel that for a moment. Put yourself there. Imagine that you are that unborn child. You're trapped in a womb scheduled for an abortion. Your situation is desperate. There is nothing you can do. Death draws closer with each tick of the clock. Well, we hardly need to imagine this, do we? We've sung of it now. Because we are all born into such a condition in Adam. Born to Adam's race, we are enveloped by death. We are born under the reigning dominion of death. And there is nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. But thanks be to God, Scripture reveals this stunning truth of which we've been singing. There is a second Adam. Scripture reveals that we fell into sin and thus into the clutches of death in solidarity with the head of our race, with the first Adam. But it also reveals that we can be united to our new head, Jesus Christ, and that His obedience erased the effects of Adam's disobedience for all who trust in Christ's work. So as Romans 5 closes out and as we return in our series to this book, the Apostle Paul paints the story of redemption in the most global and universal of terms. As he does, he centers everything on these two primal heads, these two atoms and one's relationship to them. So know that your death is tied up with one of them. Your eternal life is tied up in the other. Pay close attention because eternity hangs in the balance. Romans chapter 5. We find, first of all, as we come to verse 12 today, the universal effects of Adam's disobedience, which is death to all. We read in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The therefore ties back to verses 6 through 10. We were weak. Remember the stack of words? We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies. And yet, 5.11, we have been reconciled to God. And Paul now pans back and provides through verse 21 a succinct history of redemption. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. What does that mean? Who was that one man? The book of Genesis reveals that it is Adam, the first man that God created. God gave Adam a clear moral test. Do not eat from this tree. This single act became 
Adam's disobedience became our disobedience. Adam heard the command of God and he broke the command of God. And tragically, this single act then was no isolated matter, but we have been brought into that disobedience in our connection to Adam. It introduced sin into the human story. And what did God say would happen if Adam sinned? He would die. Death through sin, verse 12. Sin was the doorway through which death surged in upon humanity. And so death spread to all men. The reign of death became the destiny of all people born to Adam and to Eve. Death passed to all. Why? Verse 12. Because all sinned. Disobedience to God results in death. And death is universal because sin is universal. But what is the connection here between Adam's sin and our sin? Paul doesn't really clearly answer that question here in this passage. But there are two views that are predominant. The first is that Adam was like the acorn to the oak. So as Adam sinned, all that followed him, all that were born from him, would become by nature sinners. He was in a sense the seed from which the whole world grew up. Every person is infected then with Adam's sin and proves it by sinning. The other view is that Adam stood as our representative head and his sin passed to all of us in solidarity as a race. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled over these two views and how they differ with one another. But really, in the end, I think we can see that they, they, they pull us really to the same conclusion ultimately. We are born into our head, Adam, and sin just as he did. We take on his nature. We do come from him. And we die as he did. In our natural state, we're not able not to sin. We're not able not to sin. In Adam. Now, a note here, just a side note, but I, I think it's important as we defend the faith and understand our Bibles. You'll see here, Adam is no mythical character. Not some imaginary man that somebody just made up to make a point. We have died in Adam. Adam was a real man. Now, Paul interrupts himself here. You might see a dash in your translation at the end of verse 12. He interrupts himself feeling compelled to test his thesis against those who would naturally object to these universal claims that all die in Adam. And since we die, we show that we are part of Adam's disobedience. Well, wait a minute, would say some. What about the law of God? God gave to Moses the law and said repeatedly, for instance in the book of Deuteronomy, by these words we will live. So what about the law of God which can bring life as we obey it? Some would object to Paul's thesis. He seems to know that, sense that right at this point. He kind of diverges and doesn't really finish his thought. Just as one, he doesn't come to the so also another. Not yet. He'll implicitly get there. But notice what he says in verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. What does that mean? Sin was in the world before the law was given. What he means here is that the law, that is the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, many centuries after Adam fell into sin, that law was given, but sin was in the world before that. 
from Adam to Moses, people still disobeyed God. So we have Adam in the first pages of the Old Testament. We have Moses described many centuries later in the book of Exodus. And on Mount Sinai, chapter 19, leading in chapter 20 of Exodus, we have the law given on Mount Sinai, that stretch of time. That's what he's talking here in the first part of verse 13. That stretch of time, sin indeed was in the world even then. Now it takes a little bit for us to follow because this isn't a thought that we would naturally have. But notice how he finishes that thought out in verse 13. But sin is not counted where there is no law. In a sense he's saying, I'll grant you this. You can't break a law that's never been passed. You can't break a law that's never been issued. It doesn't exist until there's some statement, here's the law, now I've broken it, now I've become a lawbreaker. And yet, Paul says, think about this. Yet, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam. So from Adam to Moses, there is no written direct law. There was a direct law for Adam. There's a direct law in Mount Sinai for Moses and Israel and going forward. But in that stretch of time, Paul says, notice that everybody dies. And so the penalty of sin is being suffered even where there was no written law of God for humanity to follow. And it's just these kinds of things that I don't want to get in God's notebook. I just say, I'll leave this with him. It's an excruciating thought. The generations that passed and went into eternity never knew a single word from God. I can't figure that out. I don't know why that is. We do know that there are some evidences of God revealing truth apart from the Mosaic Law. But it's a horrifying thought to be in this world and not have a single word from God. What a blessing we have to have the Scriptures and to be able to read what God thinks. Our problem is to care enough to read it. But imagine those who had no idea what it was. That's God's notebook and we have to leave it with Him. But it's a horrifying thought. And yet, says Paul, people still died. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. You go through the generations that follow Adam, and what do you see? Early in the pages of Scripture, chapter 5, this person died. This person died. This person died. And every single person got cut down by death, which is the penalty of sin. And so, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What does that mean? Their sinning wasn't the same way. Adam had the clear word of God to obey. Centuries later, Moses received the clear law of God on Mount Sinai. So it's not true that those who lived between Adam and Moses had no clear, of, no clear law of God to follow and so could not be condemned for disobeying. That might be the conclusion we draw. Since they don't have that clear law, they can't be judged. Now how could Paul answer this? He's already really answered this in chapter 2 and verse 15. Remember this passage. In 2.15 says, They show that the work of law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So he speaks here of those who do not have the law of God, have the law of God written on their conscience. He could have answered it that way. 
But he chooses not to answer it that way and simply points to the reign of death across the framework from Adam to Moses. This is really the theme. This is a passage all about sin, but it is in many senses more a passage about death. Death reigned. The penalty of sin was suffered. So I'm not going to take you back into 2.15. We're not going to talk about conscience. We're not going to talk about how that works. Just look at the track record. Every single person died. We're dead people walking. Death reigns. Even over those who didn't sin like the transgression of Adam. Even those who didn't take a specific word of God and break it. He being then, verse 14, the type of the one who was to come. The type of the one who was to come. That is a pattern, a prefiguring of what was to come. That is, Adam is the head of the human race and his act of disobedience had a universal effect upon his offspring. This is a pattern that would be repeated in Jesus. Jesus is the head of the new race and his act of obedience has universal effects on his people. So Adam is the type. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is the antitype, the fulfillment of that pattern to which it is all pointing. It is this point Paul now draws out in the remainder of the section as he compares and contrasts these two heads. The first Adam's act of disobedience plunged his offspring into death. The second Adam's act of obedience purchased life for his people. The key then is with which Adam you identify. We have no choice in the first one. We're born into him. Do you identify with the second Adam? Note here, secondly, then, 15 to 21, the conquering grace of Christ's obedience. Life for many. Verse 15, here's our hope. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What's the free gift? We go back to chapter 3 and verse 23. In 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he's not going to redefine here what the gift is. We have this gift. It is in Christ. It is in His work for us. And that free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, many have died because of Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. You see the much more and the many. The much more means more gloriously, requiring much more noble and powerful action. Calvin said it this way, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Remember the Ben Franklin statement? He once quipped that in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. We chuckle at that, probably more because we ignore the death part and we're thinking about the taxes part. But think of this, nothing is so certain as death. Here's a wonder. 
the free gift of God's grace, reconciling us to the Father and giving us eternal life, that is more certain than death. The gift of God through Christ to eternal life is more certain than death itself. This is the wonder. There is a certainty that beats all certainties. Jesus saves His people from judgment. He forgives us. And He cleanses us. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. That is, the free gift of salvation purchased by the death of Jesus is unlike the condemnation that resulted from Adam's sin. In what sense? Verse 16, This sense. For the judgment following one trespass, brought condemnation. That's Adam. That's his sin. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. So Adam's sin was easy to commit, and the results were heart-wrenching, but really not amazing. Adam's sin and the results are not amazing any more than someone standing on a 100-foot cliff and jumping off and hitting the bottom and going splat is amazing. It's heart-wrenching. That's a horrible thing to watch, but it's really kind of a given. You jump off of that height, you're going to die. That's Adam's sin. You break God's law that way, you're the first man and the head of the race. This is pretty obvious. You're going to die. But notice the contrast with Christ, verse 16. First, by contrast, what Christ did on the cross was excruciatingly hard. Adam had to reach out and take from his wife, who had reached out and taken at the directive of Satan, a fruit that was tasty and good. It was part of God's creation. There was nothing wrong with it. It was just simply a reaching out and taking it. That's easy. Jesus' death was hard. He hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in agony in the garden, pleading, take this cup from me. This was no easy reach. This was hard. And secondly, the work of Christ addressed innumerable and incalculable sins against God. There was a stack of sin and rebellion against Him. It addressed all of that sin. It's greater. It's more glorious. It's more complete. And number three, the results are eternally awe-inspiring. As Ephesians 2 and verse 7 indicates, we will glorify God forever for His grace. We will never get over this today. What we're talking about here, the glories of our salvation, what we come about, come together to sing about on the Lord's Day, we're never going to get over this. We're going to be awed and stunned and bringing glory to God forever. The one thing that's going to be removed is our sin and our self-centeredness that will open our eyes to see the glories that Christ has met us with in His saving grace and we will sing for all eternity with joy of heart. By the way, maybe to the youngest minds here, that doesn't mean we're going to have a harp and do nothing but sing. Okay, We're just going to sing like we do here, but in a whole new way. We will never, ever get over this. In our new head, Jesus, life 
swallows up death. That's the point. What Adam did, that was easy. The one transgression, that follows. But what Christ did is amazing. And life swallows up death through His work. To justification, we notice there in verse 16. That is, the guilty are declared righteous. How is that? Chapter 3, verse 28. By faith, apart from works of the law. So continuing, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man... He's coming back to the same theme, just hitting it again and again. The trespass of Adam, death reigns through that one man. Verse 17, much more, there it is again, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death through Adam, life through the second Adam. The devastation that resulted from Adam's sin is seen in the spiritual death and the physical death that can only be described as a despotic reign. Death rules through Adam. But notice in verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Notice the word receive. The abounding grace that God provides is not universally applied to all people. It must be received. You must receive this grace by faith. And those who do, verse 17, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Rather than live in bondage to sin, our new head, Jesus Christ, liberates us from sin's tyranny. And in this triumph, we reign with Christ. In our new head, Jesus, life swallows up death. As Douglas Moo puts it, there exists a life-giving union between Christ and His own that is similar to but more powerful than the death-producing union between Adam and all of His own. That's the point that Paul continues to stress here in this place. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all people. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You may see in the margin of your translation, I think it's in the margin of all the, the ESV translations or copies of this translation. Notice in the margin, I think it would be right to read this as the trespass of the one, Adam, so the righteousness of the one, Jesus. So I would go with the marginal reading there. But as the trespass of Adam led to condemnation for all, so the act of righteousness of Christ leads to justification and life for all. Now, justification for all does not mean that every person that's ever lived is justified by Christ's work. There's two things that indicate this. How would you prove that? I mean, you look at that verse all by itself and you isolate it, it seems to say all people will be justified. But it means all people who belong to Christ. And I give two just brief arguments. The first is verse 16 and the word receive. It rests on the reception of this grace in Christ. It is not a given. It must be received as a gift. That would be one argument. The other argument would be the argument of the book itself. Over and again to this point, Paul has made clear that we are under the wrath of God. We do not do good. We do not seek God. 
and that there is a condemnation that is owed for this. So we, we don't take him the wrong way here and make him conflict with everything else that he said and everything else that the Bible teaches quite consistently on this. And it never teaches that all are justified, whether they want to be or not, in this life or the next. That is just not a biblical thought. So what he means here, take 18 again, is that as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so the... Act of the one led to justification for all. That is, all who are justified by Christ. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you get the point around here that Paul really wants us to get this? He just keeps coming back and looking at this from different angles. In Adam we have fallen in sin. In Adam, death reigns. And this is true for every one of us. Always in this book, not very far from the surface, is this whole debate about the law and how it pertains to salvation. Verse 20, he comes back to it here. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What does that mean? The law came in on Mount Sinai to Moses to increase sin. How is it increased? The trespass is increased with the knowledge of what the law is. Where the law is given, where God says, I want you to do this. I want you to rejoice at all times. I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the law of God. When that comes in, what do we see? How wonderful we are? Now we see, wow. I fall short of the glory of God. When God's law comes and says, I do not want you to do this. I don't want you to lie, to steal, to lust, to be greedy, to be hateful. We look at it and say, what? Our knowledge of our sin is increased. That's the idea here of verse 20. It increases the trespass. We become more aware of our sin. But where sin increased, verse 20, second part, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. This is the glory of it all. Disobedience is Adam's sin in the garden and now ours. Obedience is Christ's life and death on the cross, verse 19, so that His abounding grace meets us in our sin. And thinking back there, just stopping again for a moment on verse 19, that that by one man's obedience, we are made righteous. We are justified. Let's stop on that just for a moment. Adam's sin in the garden is disobedience. Christ's obedience is his life and his sacrifice on the cross. Let that truth grip you. Are you a believer in Christ? Have you been born again? You are saved because Jesus obeyed. Apart from His obedience, we have no life. How utterly foolish then to think that we have been rescued from our disobedience by Christ's obedience and we can go on living in disobedience. It makes no sense whatsoever. Paul will bring this out later in the book. But the most ridiculous, ungrateful, clueless response to the truth that Christ's obedience saves us, is to live in disobedience. 
The only proper response from a reconciled, born-again believer is to live in obedience. To do what God wants us to do. And on this, I think we have got even a generational challenge before us. We have a generation or one and a half or maybe as much as two generations who are being taught to do what feels good. Do what you want to do. We don't want to impede your will in any way. We're going to all have to think quite differently if we think about living in obedience to Christ. If we've been redeemed from the disobedience of Adam, we now in our new Adam are saved to a life of obedience. And that takes a rethinking about everything that we do. The question in life is what does Jesus want me to do? How must I obey Him? And we're going to need to work as parents, as older generations, as we train our children to recognize they're in a world that can't think like that. To turn your will over to the authority of another is subhuman in the thinking of our day. But what we see in Christ is, no, that's our salvation. That's our rescue. We've been freed to live our lives under the will of Christ. And so I learned to ask the question, what does Jesus want me to do? How must I obey Him? If He does not want you to say the very thing your tongue is itching to say, you don't say it. You learn to handle your language in a way that is obedient to Him. If He wants you to do something you don't feel like doing or to go where you don't find it desirable to go, you act and you go in obedience to Him. You don't tap into what do I want. You tap into what does He want. Now that will be termed religious mental illness in our world. What that is, is freedom. What that is, is that's the place where you determine with which Adam you identify. The reason it's called religious mental illness is because that is being put out by people who are in the old Adam. And all they know is to respond to sinful urges. They may not be able to in every situation, but that's how they live. To do what I want. In the new Adam, Jesus Christ, we live our lives in obedience to Him. What does He want? What is He calling me to do in His Word? So the law came in, verse 20, to increase the trespass. It revealed to us what is wrong, and it it saves us to do what is right. Where the law served to increase awareness of sin, here's the beauty, grace abounded. Grace swallowed up sin, And it overcame death. The song that we sung, My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. There's the the, the simple articulating of this truth. My sins are many, but His mercy is more. Death is swallowed up in life. Sinner, I ask you, what have you done wrong? How have you broken God's law? What wrongs have you done that Satan tells you, whispers in your ear, never are you going to be forgiven? Never. What is that? Identify that. Christian, what have you done? What are you doing? How does the conviction of the Holy Spirit fall on you right now as you consider His Word and your calling? 
Here is our hope. God's grace is greater than your sin. Whatever it is that would hold you back from that grace, let it go because His grace is greater. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. We sing of the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. There on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt, where Christ died, there grace exceeds our sin and our guilt. Praise God. And may we sing. Verse 21, so that, he concludes, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in death, That is, sin operates in the circle, the domain of death. And grace reigns through righteousness, leading to the eternal life that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That life overwhelms death. It comes only through Christ Jesus and His obedience, our new head. Let's draw this up just for a moment to a few concluding thoughts. This is big stuff. It's a universal look at our salvation. And it calls every one of us to come to terms with who is my head. Come to terms, first of all, with this truth, and that is that death reigns in this waking world. It's a reality. It's an enemy that we must face. All of us die in Adam. But the glorious truth that we cling to as God's people is that life reigns in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Mu puts that this way, all people, Paul teaches, stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous act or obedience. There you have it in a nutshell, as they say. Death reigns, but life reigns in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, through faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, we can have assurance of eternal life. It reminds us of chapter 5 and verse 5 as we enter into this section where we're at today. But remember there that hope doesn't put us to shame. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's Spirit poured out this love for God. His love for us and assurance that we have. And that assurance is who's my head. If it's Christ, there's forgiveness. If it's Christ, there is grace. There is eternal life. So let's go back to our imagination. And imagine that you are a child in your mother's womb. And in this sad story, your father is your mother's boyfriend. And he is the most violent and vile of criminals. He's an abusive man, to say it lightly. And he forces your mother to schedule an abortion. There are no options for her under his ruthless tyranny. She has no desire to bear his child, in fact, or to raise a child in her situation. Everything is against you. In your mother's womb, you are caged for the kill. You are dead in sin. But imagine, then, that a wise, courageous, young, undercover federal agent arrests this man, prosecutes him, 
puts him away for life and begins a relationship with your mother out of friendship and kindness, seeking to help and restore and to nurture and encourage, just here and there, passing by, seeing her, and then one day coming to a place where he crosses over a line and begins to love her and care for her. Very quickly, he marries her and commits himself to raise her, to raise you, her unborn child, and to love you as his own. What was a place of death has now become a place of life. It's now a place of nurture. It's a place of joy. It's a place of thanksgiving. And you're not even born yet. But everything has changed. For you, it is now a story of life. That only begins to touch what happens when we identify with Christ as our head. We are forgiven of our sin. We are rescued and reconciled and redeemed. And what was a cage of death, the life that we live here in this world in Adam, has now become a life abundant and filled with grace. A life that just passes our time here ultimately until we enter into the presence of our Savior, until we are born anew in that kingdom as we have been born again in spirit now. This is no dualism. This is no victory of the good over the evil. Christ's victory outshines. It carries greater hope than Adam's destruction. As one has put it, the last Adam's power to save is far greater than was the first Adam's power to destroy. Are you in that Adam? Are you in the second Adam that has rescued you from sin and given you life in His name? If so, rejoice. And if you say, I don't know, I don't think so, please narrow in on what it is that would keep you from coming to faith in Christ. And I would tell you that whatever that is, it can be overcome. Pray. Seek Him. Ask Him for His mercy. Ask Him for His grace. If it's a sin that you're ashamed of, if you say He could not love me because of my sin, it's got nothing to do with your sin. It has to do with His love and His grace. And it's sufficient for everyone. If it's that you don't know that He loves you, He does. If it's that you don't know that you can keep up with the life of following Him, I would say it's a good thing that you recognize it is a call to life. We don't want any false advertisement here. But let me tell you, you have no power to live that life without Christ. And with Him, you'll have all the power you need. All that is sufficient to help you live for Him, He will give you as a gift. But if you come forward and stand up before Him and say, here is how I deserve your salvation, you don't get it. You don't know how hopeless and helpless and lifeless you are. But if you will come to the place of recognizing that He has done this, it is His grace, His gift, His kindness, He will forgive and He will redeem. And I would call you to embrace that message today.